politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen yearning for the America we once knew to rebuild that America on life, liberty, property as we once knew it. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here at CR Podcast, Blaze Media, to guide you on that journey to restore America. Today is Thursday, March 10th, actually the anniversary of the Tokyo firebombing. Our military dropped 2,000 tons of incendiary devices, killing 100,000 civilians. That's when we had a country that understood a mission, understood we were attacked. This is what needed to be done, and it was horrific. 100,000 civilians were killed, but that's what had to be done. Today we have a government that is killing several million people from a virus, denial of treatment, and clot shots, and now distracting with Ukraine and getting us involved in a conflict that doesn't affect us like that one did. But really, it all ties in together. The more we learn about the labs in Ukraine tied to Peter Daszak, EcoHealth, gain of function, and Hunter Biden, by the way, it all comes together. We're not going to get so much into that part today, but we are going to put together the genocide here at home in the Western, and when I say at home, it, it's it's all the Western countries, putting together the denial of treatment. Who is behind this? Who is behind this visceral war on treatment and the visceral obsession over shots that are nothing but poison and months, months, almost a year after it was, it would have been pulled from the market a hundred times over in any other era It's still going strong. Who is behind that? Until we discover this, nothing matters because we're going to keep going from one crisis to another and conservatives, much less Republicans, much less everyone else, they're going to fall for it every single time as they did last night in the House. The bills now go to the Senate. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the latest on myocarditis and we're going to talk about who is behind the war on ivermectin, and much more with a very special guest coming up. Our first sponsor today, uh, you might want to consider owning land and perhaps moving elsewhere if America falls apart. Uh, Panama actually runs on the dollar. It's a high-income nation, but you're up to 10 times richer owning property there. Um Believe it or not, there is a trend. People are buying property there, even retiring there. Uh, If you go to buypanamanow.com slash conservative, you can get 100% free the complete invest and retire in Panama series, including the American's Guide to Living and Retiring in Panama, along with four videos. Folks, (laughs) we got to look at other options if this all falls apart, if we can't find states here where we could live in freedom. Go to buypanamanow.com slash conservative to find out more. So real quick, I just want to run down uh, what occurred late last night in the House of Representatives. There were four different votes um, on everything because you might have heard that the omnibus bill was being held up. Ironically, the only reason it was being held up was because of Democrats. (laughs) See, their base, they actually believe in stuff. They'll fight to the death for it. So even though this bill does nothing to stop any of their bad policies, record funding for everything, 
um, continues funding the immoral open borders, the immoral social policies, the immoral moratorium on drilling and pipelines and and obviously the mandates and everything CDC is doing. Um, all those agencies got a 12% bonus. HHS now has more money than they've ever had. But then there was extra COVID funding on top of it that basically Republicans agreed to on condition that they would offset it by using rescissions, meaning uh, clawing back uh, you know, you know, $12 billion or so from the states. States are flush with cash. They've gotten more money than they've ever gotten from all this printed money. And that is indeed a big factor in all this inflation. People talking about the CPI being the highest in 40 years, you know, and they're like, oh, oh this is, uh, you know, Russia, Ukraine. This is, this, the CPI report is for February. Now, obviously, it got a lot worse the last uh, week and a half, but, you know, and it will. But this thing did not begin with with the conflict. This was because of COVID fascism crushing our supply chains and COVID fascism funding trillions of funny money. But nonetheless, Democrats were like, screw that. We're not giving up on a penny. <laughs> you know, we're not, re- you know, rescinding unspent funds. So they actually revolted and they said, we're not going to support the omnibus. So their leadership had to indulge this for them. And they took out the rescission from the bill. So it delayed the timing. So they did a number of things. Number one, they passed a short-term CR for five days in case um, in case the Senate doesn't wind up passing a bill by midnight tonight to avoid a shutdown. So that's still fluid. Uh, what's going on in the Senate? Now, they passed it by voice vote, and nobody objected, which is weird. They should have objected to it. Then there were three other votes. What they did is they divided the omnibus into two different parts. They had the non-security part and then, like, the military part. Because all these rhinos, they basically wanted to lodge their no vote on... The, the Republican establishment and leadership, they wanted to lodge their no vote against the omnibus with like, I can't vote against the troops. This is the thing. It's like, you know, more funding for the military. And they're bragging about it. It has more, it has more funding for everything. It just spends money. It's not about the funding. It's about the policies. I don't want, I want to starve the military. I'd put the DOD budget down to zero. Do, do you know, like la- last night, uh, th- there's, there's testimony going on right now in, in the Fifth Circuit, or it might be in the District Court in, in Texas, uh, Navy SEAL versus Lloyd Austin. This is the Navy SEAL case against the um, hemlock mandate in the military, or at least in the Navy. And a couple of flight surgeons were going to testify about the DMED data. And the military sent a letter to one of them saying, you better not testify. And it's a straight-up violation of, a, of the Whistleblower Act, among several other laws. But it doesn't matter. Our military is rotten to the core. You could get Biden and Harris out tomorrow and put in your favorite person in the world to run it. Heck, put me in there. I, Daniel Horowitz, um, you know, four years ago, I wasn't old enough. Now I am. I could be president. Okay, so I'm president. I will tell you in all humility, there is no way I would ever be able to fix that military. It needs to be burned to the ground and rebuilt, and frankly, needs to be rebuilt 
in separate states where the majority of people share our values because we cannot share a country with people who believe a military is for drag queens, is for feminism, is anti-religion, is promoting clot shots and killing so many people. There's a whole report out there from a Rolling Stones reporter, um, Rolling Stones of all places, of dozens of people dropping dead. He has a death certificates at Fort Bragg. People in their 20s and 30s. And they just don't care. They're covering it up, sabotaging their thing. So I, I need to fund that? Are you kidding me? But anyway... That's what Republicans demanded. So you had roll call numbers. If you want to look this up to see who voted in which direction, you go to the clerk of the House, look at the votes. Roll call number 68. So it's the 68th vote of 2020. Um, That's the non-security omnibus. So uh, only 29 Republicans voted for it. Even then, 29 did. So you have the pure rhinos, the leadership guys, which is most of them, and then the people to the right to the other spectrum. So all but the real rhinos voted no, okay. Now, either way, they have the votes. The Democrats have the majority. The key is in the Senate where Republicans easily have the ability to block. I told you they technically have a majority now, um, but I doubt they will. Roll call 65 was the security part of it. Only 54 Republicans voted no. That's the part that contained the $14 billion in handouts for the corrupt regime in in uh, Ukraine that not only will not help the people. I mean, you could say it has – it's included in that is humanitarian funding to help, I guess, Poland and whatever, handling the refugees. But the problem is it's more than washed out by the liability of the funding of the weapons – all that's going to do is to prolong the war. They're not going to win it. Russia's going to do their do what they're going to do, and you're going to get more people killed for nothing. Then they had roll call number 70, which banned energy imports, you know, gas, coal, oil from Russia. Only 17 no votes. And actually, some of them were the far left for their reason. I'm forgetting why they would vote no. There were only maybe like 11 Republicans. I know Chip Roy, Thomas Massey voted no. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I'm forgetting who else it was. Uh, because everyone's too scared. Oh my gosh, I don't want to look like I'm siding with Russia. But it's like, dude, wait. So you're going to shut off oil, punish Americans without a parallel agreement to ramp up our production. Oh, and you're going to then go to Venezuela and Iran. Really moral. Um, so that's what it's about with that. So we await what happens in the Senate in a sane world with Democrats facing facing annihilation at the ballot box, Biden with a 27% approval rating and really 15%, 17% in most states where Republicans are from. They refuse to fight on a single one of these issues. The genocide is taking place right here at home, and we're going to talk about that um, first, a word from our sponsor today, Patriot Academy. Folks, if you want to find like-minded people to establish a cell in your home, in your neighborhood, a cell of patriots who understand that our government is irremediably corrupt, that our constitution has been shredded, take their constitution coach program. You could become a constitution coach, download the materials from Rick Green, historian David Barton at patriotacademy.com, sign up to be a uh, constitution coach. And then that way they could pair you with people in your area 
to go and join your class. And then once you study the Constitution and you remember what our country should look like and did look like but no longer does, it will spawn you to act and get together. And like we talked about yesterday with a county judge race, focusing on those county races, especially if you're in a red area where most people should agree, but they don't get what's at stake. They don't understand the who's who and the what's what of politics. You need to inform them. You need to fight at all levels locally. Again, go to patriotacademy.com. And by the way, um, I have gotten word that Patriot Academy will be continuing um, their Constitution Defense handgun training courses where we had so much fun together. We go out and uh, shoot during the day, two-day courses, four-day courses. Uh, they're picking a new venue. They had to move to a new place. It will likely be in New Mexico, a place in New Mexico um, sometime at the end of May, but it's still a little bit tentative up in the air, but we're not done with that. And uh, for those of you who are looking for a, a late spring or summer trip, um, this would be the perfect time to meet members of this audience. Um, but again, to sign up as Constitution Coach, go to patriotacademy.com. Uh, Want to get to our guest, but just real quickly, every day we are finding out an insane amount of information about this injection. I want to just give you one measure, one measure. As of today, no, not today, February 25th, just for the first eight weeks of um, VAERS reporting of myocarditis, pericarditis, there were 11,289 entries, adverse events, Recorded into theirs. That's already roughly 47% of the cases last year. So we all know 2021 was the revolution of myocarditis that no one ever heard of before. Even cardiologists would rarely see it. And it was everywhere. And yet in the first eight weeks of this year, we're already at 47%. If you would project that, if it would continue on the same pace for the rest of the year, it would work out to over 73,000 cases and very much weighted towards teens, early 20s, predominantly males. So folks, why is it that we're having even more cases now when the vaccine is kind of been grounded to a halt, except for people still being forced, especially younger people. How many are getting it in January, February? And yet it's more than ever. It means one of two things or a mixture of the two, and both of them portend the same issue. Either people are more discovering theirs now than they did before, doctors, uh, patients, and they're entering it more than they did before, or it demonstrates that the immediate kind of first few weeks worth of myocarditis is just the tip of the iceberg and possibly might have been weighted towards the people that are very active. So it inflames the, it, it, it brings out the heart inflammation quicker. But over time, what, what, what it means is that those were the tip of the iceberg and really the cohort was much wider. Either way, even if it's just a function of people discovering more, it's, it means that it was woefully underreported, and now we're getting more reports. 
So what this means is that the scope of just one, I mean, there were several thousand categories of adverse events, several hundred serious adverse events, health conditions, injuries from the shots. This is just one. And look how massive that scope is. And everyone knows it. People are dropping dead left and right. Um, and and no one wants to talk about it. A senator in uh, Australia died of a heart attack at 52, female. I mean, who knows? But, you know, very suddenly, every day we've never seen so many people drop. How long is this going to go on for? That's the dirty little secret. Because I could tell you, I could tell you that numerous doctors have told me they've seen it in action in that you do an EKG and other tests and it's all normal. It's totally normal. And you won't find it unless you do a cardio MRI, which will see the um, detect the, the scarring. And that's when they already have chest pains and other symptoms. You can imagine if you don't if you don't have that yet, but certainly even if you do, it often doesn't come up on the EKGs. So what that tells me is that this was just the tip of the iceberg. As many people as we thought were diagnosed, that's a a tiny fraction of the inflammation that likely was caused and that's going to come out over time. And of course, you can imagine insurance companies ain't covering cardio MRIs. So, I mean, do you understand... I can't get excited about any other issue. There's an emergency to warn people to to how to detect, how to diagnose, what sort of diagnosis to go to to get ahead of this. And yet nobody cares. This is this is the ultimate pro-life issue. How could any Republican self-acclaimed conservative run for office and not immediately run as if he's a state official making a state adverse event reporting system? And having the Department of Health immediately come down with studies and guidelines for doctors to proactively detect. And I would take all the stupid money we're spending on the Pfizer products and use it to open up clinics where people could test and treat. Not the virus anymore, although that still is there. But test and treat the injury. How much longer are we going to deny this? And to think the scope of it is this broad, and yet we still have 18-year-old you know, college kids being forced to get it. Folks, RotoShield, okay, this was the first rotavirus vaccine, and I forget how long it was developed, but you could imagine like every other shot, it was developed for years and seemed to be safe. There were a few dozen cases of this intestinal blocking disorder, you know, potentially life-threatening among the infants that received it, after 10,000 doses, they pulled it. They pulled it. This is what we used to do when we cared about human beings, when they weren't lab rats. Now we're a year, really 13 months into when we knew this, easily 10 months into when, when it should have been pulled, and it's still being mandated and promoted and funded, and funded with billions of dollars in this bill. Without question, without even any effort to study, much less immediately deal with this. And you know what's happening? There's a perverse irony where the longer we go on promoting and mandating the shots, much less pulling them from the market, 
despite the insane degree of safety problems, the scope, the severity, the mechanisms of action, the lipid nanoparticles, the spike, the entire understanding, short-term, much as long-term, wasn't studied for genotoxicity and, 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 and cancer. Never, never any study. This is standard operating procedures. But the more you go on, then the more it acclimates the public to the new normal. That this is what you have to sacrifice. This is the magnitude of risk you have to assume to do what's right. The more it raises the bar even further, that basically unless we could prove with the scientific method, incontrovertibly, that it kills, I don't know, 50, 50% of all people, it must be on the market and even promoted, distributed, funded it, funded by the government with billions of dollars despite the manufacturers already making tens of billions of dollars off of it and then mandated. People are being kicked out of the military, out of healthcare, denied kidney transplants. This is still going on and almost not a single Republican gives a darn and they're funding it, promoting it. When, when, when the leverage point comes up to renew these policies, they not only don't you know block the bill, they're like, hey, more funding. This is totally fine. Just understand the degree of what we're seeing, okay? Thanks, Aaron, for sending this to me, one of our listeners. In one emergency room in the University of Tel Aviv Medical Center, there were eight cases of myocarditis in a very small age group after having received the shots. It's published in Circular. This was in February, March of last year. So that was very early on. Not many kids were getting it. It was before practitioners were even on alert for safety signals. Another study published in the journal Pediatric Infectious Disease Society. Again, one hospital, Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, eight adolescents presented in just a 36-day period to one hospital. And, And the query that was done in this retrospective study was just the people diagnosed within four days. They made a very tight range there. Four days at eight in one hospital. Okay? This was what, like nine months ago? Should have been pulled. And and they admit it. I mean, CDC recommends now to have an eight-week interval now between the two shots, especially for, you know, and they say, you know, males, whatever, you know, to, 15 or whatever it is to, to 39. <laughs> so they admit it. Yeah, yeah, you know, this thing tends to cause uh, heart attacks, heart inflammation. Um, you know, it's just kind of make sure your chances are a little bit better. Space it out a little bit more. Like, what? How do you not pull that from the market? And I'm supposed to get excited by what the media tells me to? Again, if you have a candidate that is not talking about this, that's not running on this, he is not pro-life. He's pro-death. Immediately, all of the COVID funding we have, well, some of it needs to go into therapeutics, repurpose drugs for for the virus, but immediately setting up clinics, meaning the entire COVID fascism, the surveillance, the testing, the tracing, the diagnosing, needs to go into diagnosing Pfizer-Hemlock injury. But speaking of therapeutics let's let's bring in our guest here 
So as I'm bringing on our special guest today, I'm watching coming across the news wires. There's a USA Today article blasting Governor DeSantis in Florida for focusing too much on COVID. It's kind of interesting. COVID, COVID, COVID for two years. Everything is COVID. And now suddenly they're saying you're not allowed to talk about COVID. And they're perturbed by the fact that the governor is discussing this and wants to focus on it even as the pandemic is fading in their mind. Well, there's a reason they don't want you to focus on it, and it's the same reason you should focus on it. It's also the same reason they brought Ukraine, as I call it, the fourth booster shot um, for a number of reasons. And it's not just a matter of COVID. It's not just a matter of getting to the bottom of other viruses. It's a matter of they're going to do this again and again, go to the next crisis, to the next one, contrive it, induce it, block the real solution. In the case of Ukraine, it's domestic oil production. That's the ivermectin. That's the hydroxychloroquine. And then force us into a false dichotomy where this is what you have to do. They don't want to discuss where did the virus come from? We still don't know. What else is out there in these labs? What else should we know about? The scope of the shots, the scope of adverse events. That's what we did in the first half. The second half I want to discuss today, the war on early treatment. As we all saw, it wasn't normal. We never saw anything like this in our lives. And you take ivermectin. It's not that ivermectin is the only or even most important drug in this uh, whole saga. It's that ivermectin on paper was a fairy tale. It's the perfect thing. If you are pulling your hair out, people are dying, you have a plague, and you're pulling your hair out, what are we going to do? We don't have a solution. You couldn't have conjured up a better drug than ivermectin just from the fact that it was considered one of the most um, safest drugs. The pre-existing literature spoke about it glowingly, that it was broad mechanisms of action. It was known to be anti-inflammatory, antiviral, anticoagulant. And the initial studies in 2020 showed very good outcomes with COVID. And, you know, you could debate, is it 50, 60, 70, 80%, whatever it is, at a minimum, you know it's extremely safe. It was distributed in mass for another epidemic, and we didn't have problems with it and won a Nobel Prize. So, look, this is, let's jump on this. The only question is, what other adjuncts do we want? You know, how exactly it works, but... That should have been jumped upon. Why wouldn't we have done that? Well, we had on a couple months ago Dr. Tess Laurie. And, you know, she was working with Dr. Andrew Hill of the University of Liverpool uh, for the World Health Organization to basically come up with this study that would take a look at the existing body of evidence and based on that make a recommendation for use of ivermectin. Dr. Andrew Hill was known to support ivermectin. He agreed that it was very important. Initially, he was going to show 75% mortality um, benefit, but then inexplicably, just days after he published it, the paper appeared on a preprint server and the conclusion was like, yeah, we don't know enough. We need more studies. Done. Dr. Laurie called him, had a Zoom call, she recorded it, and basically he admitted that it's a complicated matter and seemed to indicate that there were higher-ups pulling his strings, pressuring him to change the findings. Who were those people? 
How deep does this go? That's where our next guest comes in. Um, I'm, I'm so happy I found him, Dr. Um, you know, we're working on this issue about Dr. Andrew Hill and everything, is investigative journalist Phil Harper. He's a filmmaker. He's an author. Now he has an excellent substack. I want you guys to go right now to The Digger, The Digger by Phil Harper on Substack. Subscribe there. He also has a podcast named The Digger. You could follow him on Twitter at Phil Y. Harper, and Phil's with two L's. Phil, thanks so much for joining us today on Short Notice. No worries. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you have a lot of interesting revelations for us here, and I just want to preface this by saying, folks, I want you to understand what I told you two days ago. Curious Journal, that's the journal where Dr. Flavio Cotagiani and several others from Brazil published the largest ivermectin study of over 150,000 patients, all of their data, uh, health markers, blood tests, everything is uploaded. It's the, it's the largest and most transparent study on anything ever done on COVID. No one could lay a glove on it, yet the, I'm, I am told, the journal told him, don't you ever submit something to us again. Clearly, there is some network going around worse than what we saw in the medieval times with Galileo and ensuring nothing like this could ever uh, uh, come out. Uh, Phil, take it from there. What did you discover? First, how did you discover and who is behind this WHO pulling of the strings of Dr. Hill? Thank you, Daniel. So it, it's a it's a complicated story, as you, as you as you point out. I should just quickly point out that my Substack is philharper.substack.com. That might be easier for people to find. Mm-hmm. Um, the I got into researching this partly because I was in India throughout the pandemic, and I think being in India, outside of kind of you know the constant messaging that people were subjected to in the West, um, my perspective was a little different. And I discovered ivermectin there, essentially, and uh, one thing led to another, and I I ended up in a conversation with Tess Laurie. I was a bit nervous about taking this drug. I had no idea about it, but she was a research doctor, and she had done all of this research on ivermectin, and she actually, over a video call, spoke with me for free and told me, look, this is the prophylactic uh, dose that you would need. It's safe. Don't worry. I I can recommend. So, So that was how I got started. And from there, really, kind of looking at it, just just like as you've explained, it's one of these um, conundrums that draws you in because you think, well, okay, we have this incredible body of data that, that to me seems really rock solid. We have these credible research doctors that are saying that, that it works. We have these credible physicians who are using it in their practice. Um, and we had a pretty good growing body of clinical data. You know, this wasn't just academic anymore. We, we had nations and states within nations that had rolled this thing out and, and they'd had, you know, reasonable success with it. So I started to look at it pretty heavily because my, as you, you explained, my background is in filmmaking, storytelling. And I thought, hey, maybe there's a film here. And it quickly became apparent to me that it is quite a complicated story to get into a film. And so months Passed by, I came back to the UK and uh, I, I couldn't figure out a way to get this story done other than just to start to write it out. And as I started to write it out, I realized just how much I had, um, how deep I'd gone on the story. You know, I'd really, really gone to town. And the first thing that I did was to create a timeline. 
I just laid out a timeline of every single thing that had happened up until that Andrew Hill paper, uh, everything before it and most of the key events that happened after the fact. And that was when it was really clear to me that, yes, the accusations from people like Pierre and Tess, who were very, very close to the story, it was it was warranted. Andrew Hill really had changed his public position on ivermectin very, very rapidly in a way that was quite difficult to square with the data. So I, I just kept on going and thinking, okay, well, if that's credible, maybe their claims that somebody altered the paper are also credible. That, that was certainly the view of Tess and of Pierre. And of course, as you mentioned, they have that, that incredible transcript and that incredible video, which Tess just put out on Friday last week, I think, if anyone hasn't seen that, uh, I strongly recommend they check it out. It's called A Letter to Dr. Andrew Hill. And so it's clear someone messed with the paper. I think it's not it's not scandalous or hearsay to say that. The, the evidence that somebody or, or some organization messed with that paper is quite clear because Andrew Hill admitted that Unitaid um, had a say in the conclusions of that particular research paper. Now, even from that position, that's a, that's problematic because um, if they have a say in the conclusions of a scientific research paper, they ought to be listed as authors, uh, and they were not. They were listed as sponsors, but there was no reference to the fact that Unitaid themselves had a say. Um, so we're left with this conundrum. That's That's basically where the story was left. There was a credible accusation that someone had altered the data. In fact, a forensic consultant uh, and a French legal case had come to the conclusion that the the ghost, there was a ghost author in the paper. They used a forensic criminologist to go through the paper meticulously line by line. And um, you, I mean, his paper is out there. I, he actually doesn't want me to name him, but I can assure you that this person does exist. And if you really look for it, you'll find this report. Um, he was of the view that there could have been two additional voices inside the paper. Um, what I then did was do what any journalist does, which is to just keep digging and just keep going and keep going. And eventually a breakthrough came when talking with Tess one day, uh, she told me that she had this additional copy of the paper. There was a version that was public and it had been put on the preprint service on the 19th of January. But this conversation with Tess led me to a different version of the paper. And when I checked it, I came to the conclusion that this particular version of the paper had never been uploaded onto the internet. So I compared that version, which was brand new, with the preprint versions, which had been in circulation for the best part of a year, I suppose. And right there, I could see differences there were clear editorial differences in the paper, uh, you know, bright as day, sentences that had been inserted. We could see that the, the, the version from the 14th of January was different to the version from the 19th. Not only was it different. And, and this is 2021. So this is about, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, 14 months ago. Exactly. This is the 14th of January, 2021. The preprint of the paper arrived on the 19th. I guess it's actually important to reiterate, actually, that the final preprint of Andrew Hill's paper did actually say that ivermectin reduces mortality by 75% in people using ivermectin. This is one of the things that is often missed in this whole debate, that the paper actually 
said that mortality was reduced. Yeah, yes, yes. And and I would add, it, it's interesting, again, because we're, we're putting together, um, you and I like to do similar things, the preponderance of evidence. It's not any one thing. This has been the flaw in all the COVID thinking. They'll, they'll take one thing, well, it doesn't necessarily prove that, but you put it all together. You know, we've never seen a Senate committee testimony taken down by YouTube, you know, Pierre Corey's testimony. This was in December 7th, 2020, a month earlier. Um, every single study gets messed with. Um, you just had the JAMA study from the Malaysian uh, randomized yeah. controlled trial. Yeah. Similar thing that they conclude, ah, this thing doesn't do anything. But then you look at it, even their thing does show, again, about a 70% reduction in mortality, but they made sure the p-value was at yeah. eh, you know, 91% confidence interval below the industry standard of, of 95. So you can't run with that you know, point. Um, so again, uh-huh. but, but that's, it, it's a pattern of this behavior, like you're saying, where it shows it works, we know it works, but they play games to be able to have a headline that will go into the media and then the clinical institutions, the doctors will run with it. Continue from there. Indeed, yeah, the, the data is, is really strong. I mean, the only debate really is in layman's debates in the media. That's that's where the debate matters, right? Because the data itself is absolutely rock solid. The, the public don't understand that because it's not up to the public to go through that data. So, you know, we I found these clear differences between the 14th of January version and the 19th of January version. And the pattern was very clear in the differences that I was finding, that, that the sentences that were inserted were weakening the conclusions of the paper. This much I could see. What was interesting to me was a sentence I now absolutely knew had been inserted into the paper between the 14th and the 19th was the exact same sentence that the forensic consultant, who's also part of a French legal case, he had identified that sentence as having been inserted as well. He was not in a position to know about the 14th of January paper that I was looking at. Wow. So now we have a lock-in on he's saying the sentence has been inserted. I now have proof that that sentence was inserted between the 14th and 19th. And now the wind is in my sails because I'm thinking, okay, we really credibly have evidence now that the edits that are happening to this paper right at the time that it was changing were seemingly to weaken the conclusions of the paper. Um, So, of course, at that stage... You think, well, if this forensic consultant got that right, and of course, it's it's, it's difficult for a forensic consultant. He's kind of an expert witness, right? There's no smoking gun in what he's found. But since he definitely had that right, because I can prove that now, right? Um, What else did he have right? And he was of the view that the sentences that were being inserted uh, were were written by someone who spoke English as a second language. Hmm. And that points us to... Um, a French epidemiologist who was working with Andrew Hill at the time. And her name is Dominique Castagolia. I asked Andrew Hill about this because I met with Andrew Hill and he confirmed it to me that they had been unofficially working together at the time and she had been offering him some advice. Um, She also confirmed it on Twitter because she actually answered these queries to people in France who also queried about this. And she confirmed that, yes, they were unofficially working together at the time and she offered him some unofficial advice. The full details of that are on my Substack. It's kind of, it's worth reading that through on my my Substack because it's a long and ambling and complicated story. But put it this way, uh, Dominique Castagolia was part of studies into remdesivir uh, and she was in receipt of consultancy fees from Gilead. Um, that is oh quite, or- that's quite ordinary for, 
research academics inside the medical world. And this is what I want to draw attention to as a journalist, that broadly, these are the problems we're dealing with. This is not about one or two or three people. This is a huge problem inside the medical publishing and research industry that we have uh, unnatural selection. Yeah, and, and <laughs> academics that receive receive consultancy fees, um, it's considered normal, and it would be much like you, Daniel, receiving I don't know m- money from the Kremlin to go and investigate uh, political corruption in Moscow, yep. and then and then expecting anyone to take you seriously uh, after you've done that. It's difficult to to have the appearance of remaining objective um, when these this is how this is how the medical research literature works. The full details of that are well worth looking into because it's a, it's an interesting and strange case. But what really kind of blew this story up just this week was um, I had actually discovered this a, a long time back, but I, I knew that the story is so long and complicated. I had to bring the audience with me to this moment. Okay, so one day I was thinking, um, I was checking through every single version of the paper I had because I, I still wasn't, convinced we had strong evidence, really. I think the Dominic Castagolia link is interesting. It's well worth looking at. But I still didn't think we had like a strong hook. And as I'm comparing every single different version of the paper that I had and really doing all of this clever stuff with differential comparisons and looking for additional data that wasn't there, it occurred to me that I hadn't fully interrogated the metadata of the document. And this is basically because I'm looking at these PDF documents. You can imagine these are preprint scientific papers. They're PDF files. And I'm looking at them in Google Chrome. Now, Google Chrome does not show you the metadata by default. And then the penny dropped. So I opened up the file in Adobe Acrobat. And <laughs> it's as simple as this. I looked at the metadata in the preprint. And in the metadata of the preprint, it tells you the date that the document was produced, which software was used to write the document. And of course, it also contains author information. And expecting to see Andrew Hill as the author, I actually see the name Andrew Owen. I recognize the name immediately because Andrew Owen is essentially Andrew Hill's boss. This is Dr. Andrew Hill. At University of Liverpool, right? Exactly. He's the lead author of the paper. And yet in the metadata of the paper itself, he is not listed as the author. The author is actually listed as a person called Andrew Owen. Andrew Owen is a professor of pharmacology at the University of Liverpool. And much like Dominic Castagolia, he was also part of three studies into the three drugs that you would expect to find competing in that space for ivermectin. Those drugs are remdesivir, citrivimab, which is by GlaxoSmithKline and Ver, and Molnupiravir. Yep, Merck's uh, drug. Exactly. And his university was in receipt of a three, £3 million investment from GlaxoSmithKline and Ver to investigate citrivimab. Uh, Andrew Owen was also in receipt of consultancy fees from Gilead, um, who manufacture remdesivir. <laughs> and he was also part of an industry-sponsored trial into Molnupiravir, at, uh, which was sponsored by Ridgeback Pharmaceuticals, who co-developed the drug with Merck. Now, this is problematic I, I, for a number of reasons. I can't 
we cannot say, I cannot say that, that Andrew Owen edited that paper. But his name is in the metadata of that yes. paper. And had Andrew Owen contributed to that paper in some meaningful way, he ought to have been listed as an author. And if he had been listed as an author for that paper, at the bottom of Andrew Hill's uh, now infamous summary of ivermectin, which recommended against rolling the drug out at a regulatory level, it recommended for more industry-sponsored randomized control trials, which everybody knew at the time was never going to happen because this is a generic drug and no one's going to make any money. So why are they going to invest in, in a randomized control trial? At the bottom of that paper, what we would have had to have seen was a conflicting interests statement. And yes. in that conflicting interests statement, we would have seen, as is right, this is perfectly legitimate for these academics to do this. This happens all the time. It would have said, said Andrew Owen is in receipt of consultancy yes. fees from Gilead. He was part of a trial into Molnupiravir, and he is soon to study Citrivimab. Something to that effect. We didn't have that. And this is what they call ghost writing. This is this is the, the ghost the, the writing. And I yeah. want as just to take a little break here as you're saying the story and, and and thank you for being so meticulous. This is really amazing. And again, we're speaking with Phil Harper joining us today from London. Um, we just had this JAMA study, and what what we've noticed, and it's unmistakable, ivermectin was batting a thousand. As we say in baseball here, it was it was it had a perfect record. One after another, we had studies early on. I mean, I know the first person to publish in the United States in March, or maybe it was it was a few months later, but he used it in March 2020 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Doctor Jean Jean Jacques Rajter um, mm. published in Chest Journal. Um, he told me the story with his wife, who's a pulmonologist as well as himself, and they had a patient on a ventilator, and they just didn't know what to do, and the wife. One, one night they were going to sleep together and she was like, yeah, I remember ivermectin because she's Brazilian and she understood the way it works from there and they used it there uh, for different things. And the guy was turned around on a ventilator and then he started using it with amazing, amazing success. And one after another, it was coming out and, and we would look and, and everything on the internet was this, it's a wonder drug. And, and this was before COVID. It was written as a wonder drug. And then suddenly, once it really started gaining traction, then we start to see these studies, eh, you know, not so good, eh, you know, kind of mediocre, doesn't really do much. And this is where people, I, I didn't know this industry, I'm not familiar with it. And when the JAMA study came out last month from Malaysia, mm. doctors here were telling me the, the lead authors were, were nothing personal, they were kind of nobodies. And these type of people don't get published on their first try in a high-impact journal like JAMA. They just don't. And they're convinced that there has to be someone pulling these strings. And I just want people to, you know, let their minds run wild as you're explaining this story. Many other suspicious circumstances, you got to wonder if they were doing the same thing that they have these kind of front men but there's ghostwriters in the background that have what to do with Pfizer, have what to do with other big pharma that have everything to gain from trashing, uh, you know, cheap off-label repurposed drugs. Yeah, I mean, I think you characterize it reasonably well. This, this is here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we were having this discussion five years ago, even three years ago, about some generic drug for some fairly common ailment that had been crushed by a pharmaceutical lobby. Absolutely nobody 
would be surprised that this is what a pharmaceutical lobby did. No one. <laughs> no one. In fact, as a matter of fact, that in 2005, the UK government put out a report. This is a UK government report. And they wanted to know how much influence the pharmaceutical industry has over the medical healthcare system of this particular country. Now, famously, we have a nationalized health service here. It's pretty good. It's not perfect, but it works quite well. Um, they still wanted to know how much power does the pharmaceutical industry have out over our healthcare. And after a years-long study, the conclusions were absolutely night and day clear as you want to get. You, it's rare to hear a government report so strongly worded. And they said, you know, to quote the Lancet on, on when they summarized the findings, they said that the influence of the pharmaceutical industry over the healthcare of this of this country, I think they said, is uh, overwhelming and out of control. They control everything from the drugs that get researched all the way through to when they get recommended at the bedside, every step of the process. So it shouldn't really be surprising to us that uh, the interests pharmaceutical industry has in getting rid of drugs that stand to that damage their profits. Um, you know, molnupiravir costs $700 a dose. Ivermectin is $2 a dose. It's not it's not rocket science to figure out the, you know, why they want to get rid of it. Um, and, and also, again, the preponderance of evidence, you could have one lousy option. They can't all be bad. And it started with hydroxychloroquine. It, it was ivermectin. It's everything. There's not a single thing they dumped on proxalutamide, the androgen blockers. And now we have a whole connection with Pfizer there with enzalutamide and everything because they actually held the patent to one of those drugs. But there was a, a similar one that's off patent and, you know, they couldn't allow that to go out. They held on to it for about a year and then dumped, you know, dumped on it once they knew Paxlovid would come out. And you see it again and again. Uh, they were even dumping on aspirin. Here in the United States, all of a sudden, I mean, after 50 years, we had three hit pieces on aspirin because, you know, we know this is a clotting disorder and people who are smart and doctors who are trying to get ahead of it were saying, look, at a minimum, take an aspirin as soon as you know you have COVID to foreclose on blood clots. And no, don't take that. Okay, the betadine nasal spray to kill the viral uh, replication in your nose. No, don't do that. Um, mm. Every uh, Pepsid, famotidine. Don't do everything. Everything was bad. There's not a yep. single thing. We have this avipdidil now that's that's made for pulmonary inflammation. Arts, you know, Senator Ron Johnson here just wrote a letter to the FDA on that. No, 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 nothing. Nothing works. But then the the thing that wrote me in, and I think you and I are in the same boat. We have no pre-existing bias here. You know, I, I have strong political views, but not towards vaccines and drugs. I didn't know anything about this. Not a doctor. Never thought about it before. It was the truth of it just led me to it. I was like, oh, my gosh. The yeah. juxtaposition of the standard that they created for the drugs that they they didn't like to the ones they did was crazy. Because yeah. remdesivir – the WHO recommending against it. It was negative effective in a University of Iowa published in JAMA study, and that was published. And no doctor will look you in the eye and say it works. $3,000 a course. Um, it it literally was pulled from the Ebola trial because it was causing kidney failure. I have it on good word from other people in various stages of development that there's other organs that are roped in as well. And it's still to this day the standard of care in the United States. Indeed, indeed, it's 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 a strange, almost unbelievable story at times. And like you, I'm I'm the same. Like, I'm you and I are political opposites, and I find this is one of the things that's so interesting about this is that it's it it totally transcends 
politics yep. and yet the um the 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 controversy that surrounds it has been politicized i think to muddy the water because politics can really pollute the way we see things at times yes. I, I really believe that now and, and that that's a huge positive i had senator johnson on a couple of weeks ago he said a similar thing to you uh pierre Corey also was kind of the opposite of me all these years yeah um and it's 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 a beautiful movement you know medical freedom transparency anti-corruption um these terms liberal conservative they're really antiquated and they don't speak to what's going on no. uh, you know today because it's really a matter of just the western former democracies uh it's not an american problem it's not a uk problem it's really all the western countries um and it's both political parties in any given country they they all got bought into this they're all the same at an elite level they're all the same but at the at the human level we're all in the same boat. We saw people dying. There's this bizarre thing that goes around. We still don't understand where it came from. They blocked all treatments. They they attacked the doctors that really tried on the ground everything they can to to help. And they pushed these things. And you know, and, and I, I would add it's important to note that Remdesivir, the other connection here is it didn't originate with Gilead. They got a hold of it, it originated with UNC Chapel Hill. And that also happens to be ground zero for the gain-of-function research submitted to our Defense Department that looks an awful lot like the furin cleavage spike protein binding to the ACE2 receptor of a coronavirus looks Mm. awfully similar to what ultimately was released in some way. Um, And nobody seems interested in connecting the dots. I know you have a lot more here. Could you give us a little bit more about the significance of Andrew Owen, assuming, again, we, with circumstantial evidence, we don't have the proof that he wrote it, but the metadata seems to be traced back to him that he seemed to have his fingerprints on it. Yeah. What 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 else is significant in that it raises concerns about a broader network of censorship and agenda in an academic publication for COVID literature? Well, well I wrote on my podcast, now my blog, uh, sorry, I wrote on my Substack just just uh, yesterday. I was a little bit concerned. I'm concerned about the focus on one particular person because here's the thing: people are angry, and I understand their right to be angry. Um, but these are people. I, I mean, I met with Andrew Hill. I didn't meet with Andrew Owen uh, yet. Maybe I will. Uh, it's a difficult situation because. There are credible questions that need to be answered, I think. And I've put those questions to the relevant people. And when I get a response, I will publish those, as any journalist should. And I'll, I'll give good prominence to those to those responses. Unitaid, I asked for question, uh, I asked for response a long, long time ago. They just have not responded. I, I don't expect I'll hear from them. Um, where it is problematic is this. Uh, the conflict of interests are quite clear and should have been made apparent, and they were not. One of those conflicts of interest if you can believe this, I couldn't believe it myself. And the full, as I say, full details of this are on, on my Substack, philharper.substack.com. Um, Andrew Owen was the person that the World Health Organization chose to prepare the evidence base on ivermectin for, from which they would make their decision on whether they would roll out ivermectin or not. In that pamphlet, which you can find, it's called the Living Document WHO Guidelines as to uh, you know, it's basically a living document of the of the kinds of things that the WHO recommend to use for COVID, and they change it regularly. In that document, you'll see that it was actually Professor Andrew Owen who prepared the evidence base upon which the WHO said no. 
And yet here we have his digital fingerprint in the very critical research document, which made recommendation against the use of ivermectin. And this very same person was across three studies into novel pharmaceutical products that would have been competing in that very same space as ivermectin. So purely from a conflict of interest perspective, there are questions that need answering. Another thing that happened was with, was a, a reader tipped me off about this is that Andrew Owen also sits on the UK COVID um, therapeutics task force. So that is somewhat akin to your NIH or something similar to this. They were tasked with the, jo the job of effectively handing over research to a larger research agency to say, look, these are the candidates of drugs that work f for COVID and these are the ones that, not, that don't. So he was in a very powerful and prominent position and so his name being in the in the metadata of the document is is curious let's put it that way and um it speaks to a broader pattern that we've seen in pharma in the pharmaceutical industry for some time is that if if a drug is gonna damage the the profit potential of another drug you will see the pharmaceutical lobby move against it. It's really yeah. not rocket science. We've, we've lived with a weapons manufacturing lobby and we accept that it exists. We've lived with a tobacco lobby and we accept that it exists. We've even lived with a, a beef and poultry lobby sure. and we accept that it exists. Somehow everybody for the last two and a half years or two years or so just kind of dropped this idea that a pharmaceutical lobby exists. Of course they exist and we need to understand this and plan for it and you know ideally it, it, do something me, about it. it it was unbelievable you would have these independent doctors who literally treated hundreds and and you can't miss it see i'm i'm into scientific data i don't like anecdotes but sometimes you have anecdotes reaching the magnitude that's greater even than than just an rct because they would find people with their blood oxygen level just plummeting and they would be turned around and nothing else was working and you couldn't miss it. And they would see it multiple times. And somehow these people were dirtbags. It did nothing. It, 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 it's all false. The minute – I'll never forget when um, – because Merck came out first with Molnipiravir a couple weeks before Paxlovid and Pfizer. And within 30 minutes, I couldn't – even some of the right-leaning publications, heck, even my own publication here at The Blaze had a – Merck says – 60% like okay so if all these independent studies independent doctors it's, it's nonsense but the pharmaceutical that not only stands to benefit but the government already is going to have a pre-existing contract to to give them 2 billion dollars to buy distribute promote yeah um somehow that is totally okay no you know no conflict of interest. It was a known dangerous mechanism of action as a nucleoside analog, um, causes mm -hmm. mutations, is concerns mm -hmm. about cancer, wasn't studied to, as, you know, with carcinogenic uh, qualities. I mean, on and on. And, and you're right. No one has any interest in, in looking into it. And now they kind of want to let this go. I don't know if you've delved into it, but I think this would be a, a great thing to do. And I could send this to you. Someone had a blog where they put together I, – I knew about cancer studies with ivermectin, but I didn't know this many. And they put together a number of them divided by category of type of cancer, just promising literature of various quality 
with ivermectin and cancer. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I think I will probably start to take a look at that because here's the here's the the sort of like UFO end of the whole discussion, right? Where you, once you get so far down the rabbit hole, you start to speculate about what else might be weird, right? <clears throat> if this is true, if it really is possible that a pharmaceutical lobby can keep a lid on on a medication as effective as we believe ivermectin to be. As effective as the data demonstrates it to be, I should say. I mean, I, I'm quite confident to say that. The data is really strong. Like you said, even that JAMA study, which went all around the world with like, look, ivermectin doesn't work. That was it was a completely wrong interpretation of the data. It was completely, completely wrong. The end the, the primary endpoint they studied was a soft endpoint. If you look at it very carefully, they, they were saying we're measuring blood oxygenation as our endpoint. And then blood oxygenation would be, you know, okay, well, if his blood oxygen is improved, then he's he's clearly better from from COVID. And, and the starting point, um, Molnupiravir and Paxlovid would have failed. Their their efficacy ends before it started. So so it was all inpatient hospitalization. They we define early treatment uh, yes. conversationally as as you know out as right away before hospitalization before your blood oxygen level drops. Sixty six percent had COVID lung already. COVID lung on the X ray. So and and then more of them were obese in the um in the study arm. And what we found here from all the doctors I speak to, and I've certainly seen this getting people help, is that this was Delta, which was vicious, vicious here. Um, you take Delta, you take obese people, they all had comorbidities. This is another thing. It was a yeah. study exclusively of comorbidities. Um, you take those people, don't give them pre-hospitalization treatment, and you come into the hospital, even if you get ivermectin in there immediately, and especially without several other adjuncts recommended by the FLCC, then you you'll see the back end benefit in mortality which we actually did but the notion that you're going to staunch for that day or two no you are going to have to be on oxygen at that level you're obese you got delta you didn't get treatment before you're going to you're going to have to spend a week or so on oxygen we saw that it's not going to you know ultimately you'll most of the time you'll survive um but basically their starting point was a WHO score of 4 severity and their endpoint was five, and yeah. four four is basically hospitalization. Five was nasal cannula. Well, and here's the here's the, yeah. here's the thing, right? They're they're saying like we're measuring blood oxygen, right? They were not measuring blood oxygen. the The primary endpoint was actually when the physician put you on oxygen. That's a soft endpoint because that that leaves the decision down to the physician. Yeah, and that physician can have pressure put on them. So if they the hard endpoint would be to measure their blood oxygen levels and write them down. And say, okay, well, they did or they didn't improve. But if it's just when the physician decides to put you on oxygen, that can be fudged. And because it can be fudged, you find that it's completely at odds with the back end endpoints, as you described, and the second and tertiary endpoints, which all demonstrated this signal of effect. And when you throw that 450 strong uh, study into the meta analysis that's the sort of ongoing and live meta analyses that are happening, uh, I spoke with Tess Laurie about this just a couple of days ago. It actually strengthens the signal on ivermectin. That JAMA study, when added to the rest of the data that we have, it doesn't weaken the signal on ivermectin. It strengthens it. And yet the headlines we got were what, what I think I believe that the lobby wants is to say, look, the primary endpoint failed. But the primary endpoint, as I described, was completely soft. The hard endpoints, like death, death is a very difficult thing to, to fudge, right? <laughs> Someone either died or they did not. They all showed exactly what we would expect to find, you know, 70% improvement. It's a very strange situation we have. It, it certainly is. I know we're out of time now. Just one thing real quick. Could you discuss a little bit 
about the role the 40 million contract with Unitaid played with the University of Liverpool and how that ties into your findings. So the project lead for, for a, a special research project inside the University of Liverpool, it's called CELT. I believe it's the Centre of Excellence for Long-Acting Therapeutics. Mm. One week prior to the alleged editing of the Andrew Hill paper, um, Unitaid announced a $40 million grant had been given to the University of Liverpool. That grant went directly to CELT inside the University of Liverpool. The project lead for CELT at the University of Liverpool is Andrew Owen. So he, Andrew Hill suggested that it was representatives of Unitaid that have a say in the conclusions of his paper. And if Andrew Owen's research department are in receipt of $40 million, you know, one week prior to that, that happening, that would make Andrew Owen a grantee of Unitaid and potentially that asks more questions of a conflict of interest, yep. I would I would say. And, and and wasn't there another partner with that grant as well? Yeah, I mean, again, it gets so murky. He, I actually found, the not the grant agreement, I did FOI requests with the University of Liverpool to get the grant agreement. Unitaid won't give you that money until you sign a grant agreement. But the agreement to release the money is actually on Unitaid's server. And that's been signed. You can see you can see it on on my Substack, and the agreement is actually between Unitaid, the, the University of Liverpool, which you would expect, and Tandem Nano. And Tandem Nano is a startup um, company that's. And this is quite again, this is quite normal for universities to do this. This is not some smoking gun sure. crime. They want to commercialise the patents that they develop at the university. It's quite ordinary for them to do that, but it. Andrew Owen is a shareholder of that company. And whenever Andrew Owen publishes, he is supposed to, and he does, and I've seen that he does do this, he declares those conflicts of interest and says, you know, I am the CEO of a startup company that's looking to exploit patents in long-acting injectable technology. And that's a problem, I think. Again, so they worked on that company works on solid lipid nanoparticle delivery mechanisms, which also kind of play a role in this uh, pandemic and uh, the technology that they're using with the with the shots. And we can't forget about the shots either. I mean, there's the competitors in terms of pharmaceutical, in terms of therapeutics, but then there's also the shots, which was a big role. I mean, I could say from the United States vantage point, it was very noticeable that. Initially, the media actually was really writing up pretty nice stories on these doctors that would try to treat. Picture March, April of 2020, um, including those that treated with ivermectin. But it changed in May, and May is when our government – that's when the NIH dove headfirst into the vaccine. They knew they were within scoring position, and they knew that they were going to have it, and that's when they dumped – all the research into you know therapeutics it was all the vaccine and that's really when things started to change um you know again people would have gotten herd immunity on the cheap they would have gotten through it with the with with repurposed drugs and there wouldn't have been such a market for it that that's a whole nother dynamic and obviously um we look forward to you looking into a lot of this i 
I just think it's it's fascinating. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have you back very soon. I, I'm already seeing on your Twitter you're you're putting out some stuff on Ukraine as well. And 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 the reason I mention that is because you know we talk about you and I coming from different political backgrounds, but what we're faced with this new paradigm in, in a in a world of very heavy heavy centralization in the Western countries. Um, social media and technology, which is very hev- heavily centralized, but very much uh, influences the way the public thinks very rapidly, too. We go from one crisis to another almost without break, where it's the same theme, if you've noticed this. Um, you know, this is not so much where you're from, some of them are, but we have four events. We had COVID, we mm-hmm. had then in May 2020. George Floyd and BLM. Then we had January 6, 2021, the you know riot at the Capitol. And then now Ukraine. It's the fourth catalyzing event where the media just went all out. Meaning they focused on a point that no one disagrees with, right? Do you want grandma to die of COVID? Do you want cops to have their necks on uh, their knees on people's necks do you believe in sacking the capital do you want putin to kill innocent people right they'll take that indulge it to the nth degree that we've never seen create a cultural change with it and then have a catalyzing event to remake culture policy the way of life based on them and nobody asks any questions. That's not right or left, liberal, conservative, labor, Tory, Republican, Democrat. That's just, I mean, th- there's something not right. I want to give I, you the last word to kind of put this all together. I agree. I totally agree. And we've all felt it over the last um, four or five years. I think big technology has played a big role in this. I think for me, if you look on my Twitter, there's a strange kind of banner image and I encourage people to take a look at that banner image on my Twitter page and they'll there's a they'll see my thinking on this kind of breakdown of people being able to understand one another there's a brilliant graph there that kind of puts this idea together one of the key tactics that people can use is, is to make sure people don't really know it's it's a case of he said she said they said I heard this thing he said heard that thing and this is one of the things I'm trying to do at the digger on on my my Substack is particularly with the story on ivermectin is is a really good example actually there is so much information out there that you could go and try and find for yourself but I I honestly think if it, from a standing start now if one of your listeners wanted to in good faith research ivermectin they're going to find it very very difficult to do that because Everywhere they go, they're going to find information landmines, and and it <laughs> almost takes a full-time professional. It takes people yes. like yourself or myself to really try and f- figure out what's going on, and and that creates a difficult dynamic for people because it means that people have to bestow some trust in people like you and me. It means that we have a bit a, a bigger responsibility than before because sense making is increasingly difficult for for ordinary people. Um, but in that confusion that I think is partly by mistake and partly deliberate, uh, that is where, where tyranny can happen, right? That's where people can, especially in medical literature, I mean, journalists have not been empowered to challenge data because they, they're told again and again and again, you can't not understand this. You're not a doctor. This is data. This is not I'm not I'm not performing surgery on someone. I would never do that. I can look at data. 
and I can read data yeah. and I can understand data and I can understand the quality of data. But it's once we get to this position of of kind of gatekeepers, uh, people who say this is the way it is and and, and on you go. Um, I actually, as 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 luck would have it, I would say that's a bigger problem on my um, political side of the fence actually at the moment. Uh, but perhaps both sides think that. But this idea that things are not questioned um, yes. is, is, is really pretty frustrating. And, I think, and, and people- I think some of that is also because some of us have been trained a little bit longer. Just we always had to do it. We kind of always had to swim upstream, um, going counterculture, against the grain, questioning things. Um, but it is it is very refreshing to see people like yourself come out and Dr. Corey's become a great friend of mine. Um, never before have I felt so much kinship with other pe- ordinary people, maybe came from different political backgrounds, and also even overseas. I I don't think until this event I I had guests internationally. Um, you know, I was you know I'm a, I'm an American. I hate everyone else outside of America, and now I find a greater kinship really with everyone, and more alienated from my own government. Um, and it's true of all the Western governments. It's really now it's really a moment when truly you see with the truckers and a lot of blue collar workers internationally, all these people coming together. The irony is that's true globalism. That's true unity of humanity coming together. It's it's at the elite level. There's just something that has gone on this generation that we need to get to the bottom bottom of. Medical is not the only sphere of it, but it might be the most uh, severe and consequential just because it's it's lives uh, on the line and it's it's truly devastating. So again, folks, you could find more of Phil Harper's work um, on Substack. Uh, it's called The Digger. He has a great podcast. I recommend it. Uh, you know, check it out, The Digger, and at Philly Harper, P H I L L Y Harper on Twitter. We really look forward to you joining us again. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, folks, we went overtime there, and uh, that, but that that was great. I, I'm really enjoying this. You know, just an ordinary guy is a filmmaker, and you know what I love? This is like the third or fourth time the last two years I had someone on. I, I had no clue who he was, and I, it turns out the guy's a liberal. Um, you know, typically before this, you have a guy with the name of a show, Conservative Review, reach out. Like, well, I'd rather take a pass on that. But this is what's happened now. Um, we've truly flattened the political curve, if you think about it. And, and this is why it's so important strategically to think about this. Uh, it's funny he referenced you know they have a great healthcare system there and you know I I feel like with someone like that over time especially if you'd be an, an American it would be so easy to get together and and teach them the same corruption we all agree with on this you're having there these are people truly are liberal in the sense that they care about people they really you know they want everyone to have healthcare everyone to have wealth and we share the same goal it's just. The, that is a symptom of the corruption. You're not going to get it by, oh, we're going to box out big pharma. That was always the thing. Pharma's corrupt, and let's have big government come in. No, he admitted you have that terrible corruption. They still own it. The only way is the opposite. What we currently have in America, what we always had in the modern era, even the not-socialized system, was venture socialism. It was this half-half. You truly need to get rid of all the subsidies, mandates, market distortions, regs, and then that's how you have normal doctors like Peter McCullough and Ryan Cole, Pierre Corey could do what they want to do and over time let the best man win. Nothing is perfect. 
but that is really how to innovate the best. Um, you know, so all these people that bought into socialism because, you know, they really cared about people, they're actually learning that is what creates corruption. There is no good moral way of doing centralized government control. There is none. It, corruption is not a bug. It's a feature of that system. And the more central power you have, the more corruption you're going to have. Anyway, a lot to think about here, folks. This all underscores the genocide is here at home. We have to continue focusing on COVID. And also the Ukraine stuff ties back in. It's the same corruption, same modus operandi. And next week, we might focus on this a little bit more. The more you learn about the labs that are set up there, this really might tie in very intimately. Um, so don't let yourself be distracted. Tune in. Make sure all your friends listen only to this show um, and The Digger. It's a great show from Phil Harper. Uh, turn off Fox News. Turn off Newsmax. Turn, turn, turn off the garbage. And, and only, only listen to those that are seeking the truth and working hard to achieve it. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.